The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we believe that prayer is one of the great means of grace that you've given to your church. We believe it is one of the great blessings you've given to us as well, that we might draw near to you in love. We readily admit, Father, that we in the Western church do not pray as we ought. And so I ask, Lord, for conviction this morning. I ask for clarity. And I ask for motivation, Father. If you would, through this particular passage in Ephesians 6, if you would give each of us a deep desire to pray to you daily by ourselves, with our brothers and sisters, and as a church, if you would cultivate that here, Father, then we know that prayer would we'd have the right place that it ought to have here at Christ Community Church. And we also know, Father, that great things will happen because you respond to the prayers of your people. Your prayers are, in fact, powerful. And so for any of us here, Father, who have neglected this means of grace, I pray that today that would end and that you would create a church of prayer warriors here for our own souls, for the lost in our midst, but ultimately and always for your glory. Use this passage in Ephesians 6 and use a sinner like me to glorify you. I ask that you do this in Christ's holy name, for he is certainly worthy. Amen. Amen. Title of the sermon is Jesus followers always pray. Jesus followers always pray. There was a man by the name of John Knox. You probably know the name if you know church history. He is the the founder of the reform movement in Scotland, 16th century. In fact, he's the, the founder of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. He was known for many things, but above all else, he was known as a man of prayer. Knox lived during the, during the reign of the Roman Catholic Queen Mary of Tudor. Most of you probably know her as Bloody Mary because of her murderous actions against the Protestants during that time. She wanted to rid the country of Protestants, and she did so by killing them. The devout Catholic queen who made it her goal to eradicate Protestantism from the land, she was reputed to have said, quote, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. This is a Catholic queen who no doubt did not know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and yet she believed in the power of prayer so much she was terrified by John Knox. Perhaps of all the prayers she hated most was one of Knox's best-known prayers, and that was a prayer for revival in Scotland. He prayed consistently, God, give me Scotland or I die. That's how passionately he wanted his fellow brothers and sisters to come to know the Lord. Centuries earlier than John Knox, the apostle Paul also prayed in a similar manner. And he taught the church in Ephesus how they were to pray like this as well. To have prayers that will cause the authorities to tremble because they are in fact so powerful. During Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, 61-62 AD, he penned a letter to the church in Ephesus. Now we know a little about the church in Ephesus because we studied it in Romans chapter two because Jesus wrote a letter to Ephesus as well. Paul wrote this letter a little bit earlier and he wrote it because the church in Ephesus was an influential church, probably the most influential in Asia Minor at that time. And, and Paul loved the church. He had spent two years there doing ministry, so he knew these people well. It was his church. He had planted it. In chapters one through three in the, in the letter, it's, it's deeply theological. It's deeply Christological, and it, it magnifies the supremacy of Christ, and it, and it reveals how dear God's people are to our Lord and Savior. In fact, in Ephesians chapter two, verse 19, Paul says, so then you are, speaking of the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're in God's family. And then there's a shift in chapters four to six, and, and Paul begins to talk about how, if we are members of the family of God, how are, we, how are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to live as followers of this reigning Jesus Christ? And then he gets to the end of chapter six, which is the end of the, of the letter, 
And he does something quite extraordinary. Look at, look at verses 10 and 11. He calls the church to be strong. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, Paul understood that if I'm going to call the church to this high standard of living, they're going to need lots of help because they have an enemy who wants to destroy the church. So Paul says, be strong in the Lord, be strong in his strength because this battle is so severe and we cannot do battle in the flesh that is successful against demonic forces. And then he tells them how to do it. He says, be strong in the Lord by be what? putting on the full armor of God. He says, put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Put on gospel shoes and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which he says is the word of God. And we looked at that last week. That word that has what? The power to make you wise for salvation and equip you for every good work. In other words, Paul's calling the church in Ephesus to put on the armament of God. God's truth, God's righteousness, God's gospel, God's faith, God's salvation, God's where he says, take the armament from God and put it on yourself that you might stand up against the scheme of the evil one. And he tells us that because we know, the scriptures teach, and we certainly should know, after our study in the book of Revelation, Satan wants to destroy the church of God. And if you're part of the church of God, he wants to destroy you. Look at verse 12. Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That sounds like something out of a horror movie. And yet we believe it to be real, or at least I think we do. And if we did, I think we'd pray more. I think we'd pray a lot more if we took that, just that single verse seriously. My beloved, your greatest enemy and the greatest enemy of God's church is not your flesh, which is powerful, and it's not the world, which is powerful. It is Satan. It is his demons. It is this, these cosmic powers of darkness and evil that want you to fail. He wants you to fail. Which means any, any human effort you have to stand firm against him, your own willpower, your own education, your own wisdom, your own temporal, temporal success, it means that it will fail too if you try to use that type of armament. Paul's saying only in God's strength and only with the armor of God do you have any chance of standing firm in your faith. Only by God's strength do you have any chance of making it to the end and entering into eternal life. And then Paul ends this call to spiritual armament to go on and put on the armor of God, he ends it with prayer. But it's not another piece of the armor. I don't know if you noticed that. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, the, the armor analogy ends. And then he calls Christians who are now armed with the weapons of God to pray at all times and on all occasions. Because prayer, my beloved, is the foundation for the success of all these other weapons. You want to use the shield of faith well? You want to use the sword of the Spirit well? You better be praying. Prayer, founded upon the Word of God, in many ways, is the weapon of all weapons that you have at your disposal if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It enables you to stand firm. It enables you to advance the kingdom. Personal prayer, group prayer, corporate prayer, together, they form a powerful, and I would argue, indispensable defense for God's people. And therefore, Jesus has every right to expect us to be what? A people of prayer. A people of prayer. Just as last week we saw that we're supposed to be a people of the book, this week we see that we're supposed to be a people of prayer. So the second of our six imperatives of what it looks like and what it means to really follow Christ, not as the Western church, but according to the New Testament, I want, to do, I want to do something this morning. I want to look at one verse, <laughs> verse 18. And it's, it's all about prayer. And, and I want to look at that verse and I want to ask and I want to answer four questions about prayer. Again, most of these you're not going to go, wow, that was so revelatory. I hope that you know this. But I want your heart to be changed. I want you to be compelled to pray out of your need for it and out of your desire for it. So four questions we're going to ask. When? When are we to pray? Verse 18 says, at all times. What are we to pray? All prayers 
and supplications. Who are we to pray for? For all the saints. And how are we to pray in the Spirit with perseverance? The when, the what, the who, and the how. Are you interested? Would you like to know the answers to those questions? Because this has an immediate impact on you individually and on our church. Paul does something interesting. He uses the word all four times in the same verse. And what he's doing is he's establishing four universal truths that apply to all Christians at all times. In other words, verse 18 is your verse. It belongs to you. And so I want you to listen with all your might. The theme of the sermon is this. Jesus' followers persevere in prayer out of their love for God and others. Jesus' followers persevere in prayer. They pray daily out of their great love for God and their great love for others. Point number one. Point number one. When are we to pray? The answer, at all times. Look at verse 17. As he ends the analogy of the armament, Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and right after the Word of God, he says what? Praying at all times. Praying at all times. Now, verse 18 identifies this, it gives us the answer to when, and when we hear this, we hear at all times, we usually think of, well, at all times, he must be, that's got to be similar to what he said to the church in Thessalonica, that we're to pray without ceasing. And I believe in some sense that's true, right? That we are supposed to be people who are in a perpetual conversation with the living God. You know, why would you want to go through your day, even a minute of your day, without being in a relationship where you can converse with the living God on a regular basis? I think that there is a sense to that. But I think that the, the, the verse actually is, is speaking more specifically about certain times of prayer. We're to pray at all times, all times that are appropriate to engage in thoughtful prayer to God. Now we know the Jews in the time of, of this particular letter and in the life of the Apostle Paul, the Jews prayed three times a day. They drew that from Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, and they drew it from uh, Psalm 55. Listen, this is Psalm 55. Verses 16 and 17, I call to God evening and morning and at noon, and he hears my voice. And so for centuries, Jews would pray, and even today, Orthodox Jews, they still pray three times a day. We know that Christ was a man of prayer. We know that that prayer was so important to Jesus that even when he was exhausted, he would steal away by himself, and he would go up to a mountaintop, and he would spend time with the living God, and he taught his disciples to do the same. So it was certainly important to pray at specific times. In fact, the Bible, this is amazing, given the relatively short period of time of the Gospels in their writing, the Bible talks about Jesus praying 25 different times in the Gospel accounts. In other words, prayer was important to him. And we know from Acts 2.42 that the the church in Acts post-Pentecost was what? They were devoted to prayer. They prayed in the temple. They prayed in their homes. They were a praying people. The model we see in the Bible and throughout church history, is that true followers of Christ pray at all times and on all occasions. They pray by themselves. They pray with brothers and sisters. They gather together as a church, as we did this morning, and they pray with the body of Christ. So first question for you, is that you? This is a simple question. May not be a simple answer. Is that you? Do you, as a follower of Christ, pray at all times? Does that describe your prayer life as a follower of Jesus Christ? The great reformer Martin Luther, he, he once said, and I agree, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Now you see, you know what? Martin Luther was prone to hyperbole, and that is a true statement, but I think this is dead on. I'll read it again. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And yet, my beloved, how many Christians in the Western church this very morning rarely pray alone and never pray with their brothers and sisters in Christ. How many are gathered in places like this would hear Martin Luther's statement and say, that can't be true because I claim Christ and yet I do not pray. Luther's able to make this extreme statement comparing prayer to breathing because prayer at its very core, prayer prayer is drawing near to God. At its very base, prayer is you entering into the presence of a holy God and enjoying him and knowing him and petitioning him. And true Christians are always what? We're always 
drawing near to God. We always want to draw near to God because we need to and because we want to. The Christian will draw near to God, I believe, out of necessity because we know, the true Christian knows, you need everything in life you need comes from God. Every single thing. In fact, when Jesus, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray and he, he taught them the Our Father, he taught them this response to God that they come before God and they ask for what? Daily bread, forgiveness of sins, the ability to forgive others, for their hearts not to be tempted, for, not, for them not to be delivered into evil. Daily prayers, petitioning God for the things that we need every single day in our lives. And if we need God for everything, if we need him for our marriages so they don't crumble, if we need prayer for our children so they don't go on a path that leads to destruction, if we need God for ministry and work and finances, health, if we need God for everything, then we should be praying at all times for all these things. We not only need to be praying at all times because we need to, but if you're born again and the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, you'll want to pray. Did you hear what I said? For those of you who struggle so much, you will want to pray. You see, if prayer is drawing near to God and the true follower of Christ wants nothing more than God himself, drawing near to God on a regular basis, then praying at all times will be something you want to do. Praying at all times will be something your heart is inclined to do. And I'm not saying there's not a battle with the flesh. The battle of the flesh is it tries to keep you from praying, but your heart will supersede that and you will find yourself praying at all times and in all circumstances because you want to. You really want to enter into the presence of God to enjoy God. Ian Bounds, one of the... um, uh, um, Christians in church history who probably wrote more extensively on prayer than most of the people in the history of the church. He said this. He said, prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather a privilege to be enjoyed. Does that match your prayer life? Prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. He's right. Friend, if prayer is a burden to you or an addendum to your Christianity, something you do before a meal or sporadically when you're in crisis mode, then you must know that there is, and I say this, there's a problem with your heart. You must know that. There's something wrong on the inside. If If you're not praying regularly and faithfully, because you don't think you need God and for his daily protection and provision, then you have a pride problem. If you're not praying regularly because you don't want to draw near to God, then you have a love problem. Pride problems and love problems are not good problems for the Christian heart. Friends, you must know that God desires, listen, he desires to commune with you in prayer. He desires to draw near to you in prayer, to encourage you, to teach you, to rebuke you, to cause you to want to walk in righteousness. He desires that. Do you desire that? To forsake prayer is to forsake time with God. It's not what true followers of Christ do. And if they are forsaking time with God, they repent and they pray. Point number one, when are we to pray? At all times. We are to be a praying people. Now the second question is this, well, if we're praying at all times, what are we supposed to be praying? I mean, what do we do with all those times that we're praying? In the morning, in the evening, in the afternoon. Point number two, we are to pray all prayers and supplications. Look at verse 18 again. We are to be, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, Linguistically, Paul is probably using that phrase, prayer and supplication, to just emphasize the importance of lifting up all kinds of prayers. All prayers would probably reference a a broader category of the types of prayers. We have prayers of adoration where we worship God. We have prayers of confession where we confess our sins to God. We have prayers of thanksgiving, right? Where we, we thank God for all the blessings in our lives. And of course, we have prayers of supplication. 
presence of supplication are usually those, those are more specific requests. Those are, those are prayer requests where we're asking God to do something or we're asking God for something to supply us, hence the term supplication, to supply us. In fact, in verse 19, when you heard Kirk reading this, Paul asked the Ephesian church to pray for him. Why? So he could have the words and the power to faithfully proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He said, pray for me so when I proclaim the gospel, I can do it well and in power. Now this picture that Paul's painting for the Ephesian church of how they are to pray, they knew it well because Paul had been there for two years and they prayed with Paul. So this is not just some abstract teaching on prayer. They're like, oh, I remember when Paul was here. I remember how Paul prayed. In fact, in the New Testament, this is amazing. Paul prays, he shares prayer reports, he makes prayer requests, and he exhorts others to pray 41 times in the New Testament. You think Paul was serious about prayer? Very serious. We have prayers of faith, we have prayers of supplication, we have prayers of thanksgiving and worship and adoration and in intercession, we have imprecatory prayers, we have prayers made on our behalf by the Holy Spirit when we cannot pray. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus does his version of a Matthew chapter 6, Our Father, it's abbreviated. And after he's done teaching the disciples how they're supposed to pray, he, he teaches specifically to supplication on why we should freely and joyfully come before God on a regular basis and ask God. And he does so by revealing who his father is and how much his father loves his people. Listen to this. This is from Luke chapter 11. Jesus has just finished teaching the Our Father. And then he writes this. He speaks. Luke is writing. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. You say, well, I thought that was an evangelistic prayer. It might be, but he's talking about prayer. He's talking about the church praying to God, asking God of things. And then he writes this. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, <laughs> will give him a scorpion? If you then, listen, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If we know how to give good gifts to our children and yet we are evil, how much more so will God give us good gifts, even the Holy Spirit, when we ask him? When the boys were little, when my sons, who are now old and big, were little boys, sorry, they'd ask me for all kinds of things. They'd ask for help, they'd ask for toys, they'd ask for treats, they'd ask for stories, they'd ask for adventures. We went on a lot of adventures. And they'd ask me because of a few fundamental aspects of our relationship they understood. They knew I was their father. They knew that I loved them. And they knew that I wanted to bless them in how we related to each other. They knew that. And they also knew that for most of their requests, and, and sometimes they were extreme, but for most of their requests, I'd be able to meet them. I certainly was able to provide for their basic wants and their basic needs. Now in striving... I say striving because I did not do this successfully, but in striving to be a good father, I would not always say yes. In fact, when they were little, oftentimes they would come to me in a request, as we do our father, and I would say, I would say no. They say, Dad, can I have a fourth cookie? I would say no. Maybe not a third. I was a little easier on that. Lori was harder on that. They'd say to me, Dad, can we play video games for hours? I would say no. They'd say, Dad, can we go play hide and go seek up in the woods? And I'd say, no, there's poison oak up in the woods. Don't go play hide-and-go-seek up there. But when my children would ask me for things that I, I could provide and I knew would actually bless them, that I knew that if I said yes and they received it, it was good for them. Dad, will you tell me a bedtime story? Dad, will you teach me how to ride a bike? Dad, will you help me with my homework? The answer was always yes, yes, of course I will because I love you. They would hear a joyful response. My beloved, if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our heavenly Father who is perfect? How much more is your Father able and willing to bless you when you ask Him as a son or daughter? The answer is infinitely more and infinitely better. Friends, whether we like it or not, our prayer lives, they do, they do reveal our hearts toward God. My boys came to me not 
cowering like criminals, expecting to be judged or punished. They came to me as beloved sons, knowing how deeply I loved them and how I truly wanted to bless them. They, they knew that implicitly by our relationship. I wanted to bless them spiritually. I wanted to bless them emotionally and physically. When we don't pray at all times, and when we don't make all kinds of prayers and supplications before our Heavenly Father, listen, please, we reveal clearly that we don't know how much God loves us in Christ. We reveal by our prayer life how much we do not understand the magnitude the love of the Father has for those who are in His Son. We reveal that we have an unbiblical understanding of what it means to be a son or a daughter in the family of God. And I would argue, my beloved, if you are not praying regularly for all kinds of prayers and supplications, if you are not petitioning your Father daily, you are insulting your Father. It's an insult to God for you not to pray. God is generous, God is gracious, and God is willing as your Father. Listen, He will grant you every single thing that's in accordance with His will that is also good for you. He will say yes to it. And if He says no, it's because He loves you. You say, well, that's, that's odd. I pray for a lot of things He doesn't say yes to. It's because He loves you. Certainly God the Father knows better than you do, does He not? I know we don't think He does, but He does. He is generous, radically generous, radically willing to bless your prayer requests. There was an ancient story of a philosopher in the court of the 4th century Macedonian king, you know him by Alexander the Great. The philosopher was known to have incredible wisdom, but he was particularly poor. He didn't have any money. He petitioned Alexander for financial help, and the king told him, draw whatever you need from the imperial treasury. Now that's, that's quite a request and answer to it. The philosopher requested equal to the amount today of about $50,000. The treasurer, infuriated by his request, he refuted. He said, no, I will not give it to you. And he stormed off to Alexander and he said to him, he wants $50,000. To which Alexander the Great replied, listen. He said, pay the money at once. The philosopher has done me a singular honor by the largeness oh listen my beloved by the largeness of his request he shows that he has understood both my wealth and my generosity do you know the wealth and generosity of your heavenly father do you know it do you know how much he loves you in Christ? Do you know how much he wants to bless you in Christ? If you are not praying at all times, all kinds of prayers and supplications, big and small, then you do not. Even if theologically you say you do, you say, yes, I know that God loves me. Yes, I know that God wants to bless me. If you are not praying all the time, if you pray like a Western Christian, you have no idea how much God loves you and you have no idea how much he wants to bless you. And that's not a word of faith, charismatic, get-rich-quick type of teaching and prayer. Your Father loves you. Your Father wants to bless you. And your Father will give you everything that's in accordance with His will that is truly good for you. So ask, petition, pray at all times, all kinds of prayers and all kinds of supplications. If my sons never came to me to ask for things, I would know by their silence that they did not know how much I love them. All right, point number one, when do we pray at all times? What are we supposed to pray? All kinds of prayers and supplications. Point number three, who are we supposed to pray for? Who are we supposed to pray for? Look at verse 18 again. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You say, who are the saints? The saints are those saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are members of the family of God. Those who are saints mean sacred sanctum, set apart to serve and follow Jesus Christ. The saints are followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we're supposed to pray for. Now you say, now wait a minute. There are other passages in the Bible, Pastor, that I know we're supposed to pray for people outside the church. And that is an absolutely true statement. 
We're supposed to pray, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, we're supposed to pray for our leaders that we might have what? Peace in the land. We know that we're supposed, to, we're supposed to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. I know that one, you say. I don't do it much, but I know it. We're supposed to pray for the lost. Acts chapter 26, verse 18, that their eyes might be opened, that they turn from the power of Satan to God. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1, he, he makes this all-encompassing prayer for those outside the church. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, all people. And so the scriptures clearly teach that our prayers for others is not to be limited to the church. So why does Paul emphasize here for all the saints? Because the emphasis in this passage, and my beloved, the emphasis in the New Testament is Christians praying for one another. Yes, you're supposed to pray for the lost. You're supposed to pray for your leaders. You're supposed to pray for your enemies. But in the scriptures, the overwhelming movement is praying for one another, our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. You making supplications, petitioning God, listen, on the behalf of others. You looking around saying, what are my brothers and sisters' needs? And then asking God to meet those needs of those you call members of your own family. And Paul Paul had already modeled this in the letter. In fact, in chapter one and chapter three, if we were preaching through this exegetically, we'd have spent probably a few weeks on each of these two large prayers. In chapter one, the apostle Paul, he prays in verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he talks about how he prays for them. And then he doesn't get two more chapters. Chapter three, he writes this, I bow my knees before the Father that he may grant to you grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul was praying for the Ephesians so they knew that. They understood what this meant to pray for one another. Paul understood clearly as a follower of Jesus Christ that Christ prayed for the disciples. We obviously know Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 where he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our going out. But probably one of the, I think one of the most moving prayers of our Lord has to be from the cross. It has to be when he says what? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That has to be one of Jesus' most amazing prayers for those who are literally putting him to death. And so Paul understood that if we're gonna follow Christ and Christ prays for his people, even now we know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is where? He's seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes on behalf of his people. So even now, this very morning, Jesus is praying for the church. And so if we are followers of Christ, then I would argue it is every single Christian's duty and privilege to be praying for one another. What a great honor you have. And what a great responsibility you have to pray at all times, all kinds of prayers and supplications, not just for yourself, but for members of the body of Christ. Paul calls the church in Ephesus to do that, to put on the armor of God and to pray fervently for one another. Remember the context of the passage. He says you must pray for one another. Why? Look at verse 11 again. Cast your eyes back up. Why must we pray for one another? So that we can stand against the devil's schemes. Right? It, as soon as you come to a saving grace in Christ, you got a bullseye on your back. You know that. It wasn't there before you were saved. You were already part of the kingdom of darkness. You didn't have to be reclaimed. You come to Christ, you get a bullseye on your back. Every single Christian, every single day, we not only battle the flesh and we battle against the world, but your greatest enemy is Satan and the dominions of darkness. You know that. We know that now after Revelation, do we not? I mean, if we miss that, we missed a major point in the book of Revelation. That Satan and the demons are real the darkness is real, and they're after you. They're after his church. They're after the body of Christ here. And if that's true, my beloved, then, then we'll want to be praying for one another. Right? If it's true, I mean, if, if, if Satan or even one of his demons, if he were to, be, be careful to say this, if he were to manifest himself right here before the communion table, and you could actually see a demon with your own eyes, we'd all fall out of our chairs like dead. So terrifying, so evil, so powerful. And they're after your brothers and sisters. They're after those who are in this room. 
I'm thankful that God has, has given us a weapon. Oh, he's given us a powerful weapon that we can use at any time and in any place to come to our brother's and sister's aid. I woke up two nights ago, 4 a.m., and there were a few of you that were on my mind. I won't tell you who. And I immediately started praying. I don't know why God does that. I don't know why he does. He'll bring people to my mind. I'm assuming something's happening. And so I pray for security and for safety for that particular individual. Most of you, do you know Hudson Taylor, the great British missionary to mainland China? Hudson Taylor is one of the great missionaries in, in the history of the church. What most of us don't know about Hudson Taylor is that when he was younger, he renounced his faith. Um, even up to the age of 17, uh, he did not believe what his parents had taught him. Now, his father was a lay minister in the Methodist church, and his mother, Amelia, she was a prayer warrior. Um, and they were very disturbed. He was 15, 16, and he was flat out rejecting the gospel, did not believe in Jesus Christ or the need for salvation. But her, Hudson's father and mother knew that the battle that they were fighting against wasn't an intellectual battle, it was a spiritual battle. And so they actively and fervently prayed for their son's soul because they knew that it was Satan that they had to overcome and not just his foolishness. I want you to listen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to read to you, in Hudson Taylor's own words, his account of salvation. The gospel's in here. It's just beautiful. Let, let me read to you. He writes, this is Hudson Taylor talking now. I sat down to read the gospel track, Poor Richard. It was a very popular track at that time. In an utterly unconcerned state of mind. Wasn't terribly interested, but he was going to read it anyway. Probably bored. He writes, little did I know at the time what was going on in the heart of my dear mother 70 or 80 miles away. She had risen from the dinner table that afternoon with an intense yearning for the conversion of her boy. She went to her room and turned the key in the door, resolved not to leave that spot until her prayers were answered. Hour after hour, that dear mother pleaded for me until at length she could pray no longer, but she was constrained to praise God for that which his spirit taught her had already been accomplished, the conversion of her only son. At the exact same time, I had taken up this little tract and while reading it was struck with the sentence, the finished work of Christ. Immediately the words, it is finished, suggested themselves to my mind. What is finished, I asked. And I answered at once, a full and perfect atonement and sanctification for sin. The debt was paid by the substitute. Christ died for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world was his answer. He was well trained in the church, was he not? Then came the thought, if the whole work was finished and the whole debt paid, what is there left for me to do? And with this dawned the joyful conviction as light was flashed into my soul by the Holy Spirit that there was nothing in the world to be done but to fall down on one's knees accept Christ as Savior and worship Him forevermore. Thus, while my dear mother was praising God on her knees in a chamber, I was praising him in the old warehouse to which I had gone alone to read this little book. Amelia Hudson knew that her son's greatest enemy was Satan himself. And she knew that her primary weapon was not logic, it was not apologetics, it was prayer. And so she went down on her knees and she said, Lord, I will not rise until you save my son. And he did. And he did. He not only saved her son, he made him the greatest missionary to the nation of China and as a result has saved millions of souls through Hudson Taylor's faithful proclamation. Aren't you glad that Amelia Hudson prayed for him? Aren't you glad? My beloved, do you pray for your brothers and sisters like this? Do you realize the danger they're in as followers of Christ, with Satan and the demons trying to attack them. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters like this? We spend so little time really praying for one another. And again, I believe this reveals our hearts. 
You see, most, most people... Most people pray in, in some way. They, they lift up prayers in crisis. Even, even atheists pray when things are bad. And, and most Christians, most Christians, they pray to God, albeit sporadically. They'll pray for themselves. They'll pray for, for family members or close friends. When we neglect to pray, though, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, those that we are commanded in the Scriptures to pray for, those that we know are in a battle for their very souls against the greatest enemy of God in the church. When we do not pray for one another, we reveal in our lack of prayer a lack of love. If your greatest enemy is Satan, and we know that, and yet we don't pray for each other, we cannot say that we're acting in love towards one another. I know this may sound hard, my beloved, but I, I'd like us to change on this. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you love one another. Friends, if you rarely or never pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, those here at this church and certainly those around the world, I think it's easy to see that there's a lack of love, that we don't love one another as we ought. And yet Christ said, this is how the world will know that we are followers of his by our love for one another. Hard pressed, I believe, to say you deeply love your brothers and sisters and never prayed for them. They are in danger every single day, in danger against their flesh, in danger against the world, and in danger against Satan himself. How much do you love? God loves it when we pray, and he loves it. I cannot overemphasize that. He loves it when we pray for one another. You want a time of incredible uh, fellowship with the Lord, go down on your knees and pray fervently for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You'll be overwhelmed with a sense of joy. He loves it when you pray for his people. He loves it. Andrew Murray, the 19th century Dutch Reformed missionary that went to South Africa, he wrote this. He said, think of what God can do in the lives of your brothers and sisters and how he delights to hear the prayers of his redeemed people. And then he said, Think of your place and your privilege in Christ and expect great things. Expect great things. If we, if we as a church start praying for one another at all times, all kinds of prayers and supplications, I do believe it's right for us to expect great things in the lives of one another. I believe that we should expect to see holiness begin to prevail. I think we should expect in our families for Christ to reign, for decisions to be made in accordance with the word of God. I think, my beloved, if we pray for one another fervently, we will begin to see our friends and family saved as we pray for them. We'll begin to see the lost here saved as we pray for them. These are things that only the power of prayer can accomplish. Have you ever felt that sense of desperation? I mean, you've tried. You tried reasoning, you tried talking, you tried helping, you tried counseling, you tried everything but prayer. And then you step back and you realize, and this is grace, the Holy Spirit said, you've got to pray. Nothing's going to change unless you pray. And then you still don't pray. You try more counseling, more education, more engagement with no prayer. We are called and commanded to pray for one another. If you're not praying for one another fervently, I would argue that there's a love problem in your heart for your brothers and sisters. You know how hard it is. I mean, you know how hard it is. It's not just you. It's hard for everybody. Following Christ is hard, so we must pray fervently. All right, when are we to pray at all times? What are we to pray? All kinds of prayers and supplications. Who are we supposed to pray for? The world but mostly, one another. Can I give you one more or are you bored? You say, let's just go pray. All right, we, we can do that. You know, if you petition that, I think, all right, I'll, I'll end right here. We'll just spend the rest of the praying. Uh, I, I got one more for you. How are we supposed to do it? How are we supposed to pray? Look at verse 18 again. It's kind of nice just being in one verse, isn't it? There's about another 45 minutes in this verse, by the way. <clears throat> uh, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. 
alert, keep alert with perseverance as we pray in the Spirit. Now all true prayer, and again, this is probably not new to you, all true prayer must be done in and through the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Triune God. You see, prayer is a real conversation with the living God, with the Creator. And a person cannot pray apart from the presence and leading of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, he, he once said, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It's not something you just think about or say with your lips. He said this, it is far deeper than that. He said, true prayer is a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. It's you entering into the presence of God and, and encountering God real in a real spiritual way. And of course, that requires then the Holy Spirit of God. You see, as sinners, without Christ, we have no access to God. We have no relationship with God, and therefore there's no way to have a spiritual transaction with God if we cannot get to God. We can't have an intimate conversation with our Creator unless we have the Spirit. Now I know, I know there are Christian denominations that pray with people from other religions. And I know at times it may seem like there's this collective interfaith prayer. I mean, people's eyes are closed. In some cases, they're saying many of the same things. But there is no prayer without the Holy Spirit. You need to know that. There is no prayer to the living God without the Holy Spirit. It may look like prayer, it may sound like prayer, but apart from Christ, there is no prayer. We pray to the Father through the Son by what? By the power of the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no prayer. No prayer. The Spirit prompts us to pray. It leads us to pray. It gives us a desire to pray. It even gives us the words to pray. And when we can't pray, when we don't even have the words, Paul said in Romans chapter eight, the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You gotta have the spirit in order to pray to God. According to Andrew Murray, again, where there is much prayer, there will be much of the spirit. Where there is much of the spirit, there will be ever increasing prayer. So the first thing we see is that when we talk about how do we pray, we must pray in the Spirit by His power, by His leading, by His strength. But there's another piece here in verse 18 that is it's fascinating and I want to close on it. We must pray by keeping, be keeping alert with all perseverance. Keeping alert with all perseverance. In other words, to be committed to this Spirit-led prayer at all times with all kinds of prayers and supplications the believer needs to stay on their toes. You need to be alert with all perseverance, steadfast in your prayers. Now most commentators, they, they think that Paul is drawing from, when he says keep alert with all perseverance in your prayers, he's drawing from Jesus' exhortation in multiple places to what? To watch and pray. Be alert as you pray. For obvious reasons, right? We want to stay awake, we want to stay alert because if we fall asleep, we're tempted to sin. And he says, and oh, by the way, you better, you better stay awake and you better pray because what? I'm coming soon and you don't want to be asleep. When I come, that would be bad. And so Paul here, it's, this is, I've read this before and I've heard it taught that this is not a correction to like bad prayer, like rote, um, mundane prayer. Paul's not correcting that, although I think it could work as a correction. He's not saying, listen, when you, when you, when you say that prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. He's not talking about a correction there. He's talking about the need to pray awake with great perseverance in the midst of your prayer. The NIV translates it a little bit better. He said, be alert and always keep on praying. Be alert, not asleep, and always keep on praying. In fact, this, this phrase was used in the early church to teach Christians, the catechumen, how to pray. They are to pray in a constant state of watchfulness. Now that makes sense, my beloved. If, if Satan is after us, then he wants us to fall asleep. He wants us to sin. He wants us to not be ready when Christ comes. And so prayer must encompass a constant watchfulness, a constant state of never ceasing. And you say, you know, 
it's hard because days are long at times. And, and the routine, Monday through Friday, and then Sunday again, it's always Sunday. It comes and it goes, and it just seems to put a weight on me where prayer does not have the right place in my life. I don't find myself awake in my prayers. When I pray, I often fall asleep. What do we do with that? It's fascinating how we're more faithful to pray in the midst of crisis, isn't it? And not so much on a day-to-day basis. And yet, that's exactly what Paul's saying you gotta do here. You gotta stay awake. Stay, stay alert and pray with perseverance, praying at all times. Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, tied together. Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, watchful in it, watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. You say, well, why, why this final exhortation? You know what Paul's doing here. He's telling the, the Christian in the church, your soul he just told us to pray for one another, for all the saints. But he's saying, oh, by the way, your soul also is in jeopardy. You're in danger. You say, well, wait a minute. I can pray for others because they're in danger. Paul's saying, no. Every single person who desires to follow Jesus Christ is in danger of being attacked and succumbing to the schemes of the evil one. If you're not praying by yourself with brothers and sisters, if you're not praying with the church, you may already be asleep. You're certainly tempting yourself to sleep. You're tempting yourself to live like the world lives and to succumb to the temptations of this world. If you're not praying fervently for your own soul, then you're saying, listen, Lord, I don't think you're coming back now. I don't think you're going to come now bringing heaven to earth and judging the living and the dead. Satan knows the power of prayer and he loves it when we don't pray. He loves churches that are prayerless churches because he knows there's no power in that. And so he wants us to fall asleep. He wants us to go through the motions. He wants us to become religious so we have no power. Samuel Chadwick was an English preacher in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century. This is a pretty famous quote. You probably heard it, but it's worth repeating. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. The one concern. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil and mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Isn't that an amazing thought? Wouldn't you like to make the devil tremble? I mean, isn't it amazing that you said, tonight, I can go home tonight and I can make Satan tremble by the prayers I lift up to my living God. Satan trembles when we pray because he knows the power of prayer far better than we do. He does. He knows the power of prayer far better than certainly the Western church does. He knows that if we pray at all times, all kinds of prayers and supplications, he knows we're going to stay awake, right? He knows if you are faithfully praying that you will remain awake, that you will not be ensnared by his sins, that you'll be ready when Christ comes. You see, it's impossible to be fervent in prayer and fervent in sin. You know that. You cannot be fervent in prayer and fervent in sin at the same time. Prayer will overcome your sin. So if you're struggling right now and you say, you know what, I'm asleep a lot, Pastor. I kind of stumble through life. I struggle a lot in my Christian walk. I want to encourage you from the word of God to pray. Pray fervently. Pray at all times. Bound said this, prayer makes a godly man. Prayer makes a godly woman. It puts within him the mind of Christ, the mind of humility, of self-surrender, of service, of piety, and of prayer. And then he wrote this, if we really pray, and you know the difference. I'm not talking about the 10-second prayer before your meal. If you really pray, you will become more like God, or else, he says, you'll quit praying. If you really pray, if you really commit to this means of grace, you'll become more like God or what? You'll stop praying. You'll stop praying. 
There's a, a tribe in Africa whose first converts were, were radical prayer warriors for Christ. In fact, the believers each had this, I guess it would be our outdoor prayer closet that was removed from their village, outside the village, and they would pray, they would go, and they'd pray in solitude. And the villagers, they, they reached these outdoor prayer closets by using their own private paths to get to that particular place. When grass began to grow over these trails, it was evident that that person who used to go out there is no longer praying or not praying very much. Because these new Christians who had very little theological understanding, far less than you, because they understood that a prayerless Christian life is a dangerous Christian life, because they had a deep concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ and did not want them to be ensnared by the schemes of the devil, a unique custom sprang up in their village. Whenever anyone noticed an overgrown prayer path, he or she would go to the person and lovingly say, friend, there's grass on your path. Is there grass on your path, my friends? Is there grass on your path? Do you pray at all times, all kinds of prayers and supplications for all the saints, saying awake and persevering in prayer? If not, then I, I would encourage you this day to seek forgiveness from God. Ask him to forgive you for striving to live a prayerless Christian life. Seek forgiveness for your lack of love for God. Seek forgiveness for not knowing how much God loves you and wants to bless you. Seek forgiveness, my beloved, if you are a prayerless Christian for your lack of love for one another, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, who actually need your prayers. They need your prayers. And then ask God. Ask God to give you a desire to pray at all times. Ask him to give you, see we can pray all kinds of prayers and supplications. Ask God to give you the desire to pray like Jesus had. Or like Paul or John Knox or all the saints who prayed so fervently throughout the centuries. Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, he, he made a way for us to come back into a right relationship with the Father. He made a way for us to come back into the family of God as sons and daughters. He made that way through the cross. And one day, one day the kingdom's gonna come and we're gonna be gathered together before the throne and you and I and all true believers will be in God's presence. We will serve him, we will love him, we will speak to him face to face. But until then, until then, we are called to pray. We're called to enter into his presence, to enjoy him, and to be intimate with him through prayer. So pray alone. Pray with your brothers and sisters. Gather with us on Sunday morning. We pray together as a church. That is part and parcel, my beloved, with the New Testament and the history of the church. God's people gathered and they prayed regularly. Get up a little bit early, get here, and pray if you're serious about this means of grace and your love for God and your love for one another. Prayer or lack of prayer, it reveals the heart. Your heart towards God and your heart towards others. Last question. What does your prayer life reveal about your heart? What does your prayer life reveal about your heart? Let's pray. Father, we see your children in different parts of the world today understanding this necessary and powerful means of grace. We see it. It's not an anomaly to your church in other places, even though it's an anomaly to your church in the West. Forgive us for our pride, Father. I think in the West, we don't think we need to pray. Maybe it's our ignorance, Father. Maybe we don't, need, maybe we don't realize the danger we're in. Or maybe, Father, we really don't want to spend much time alone with you. I pray that's not the case. I ask, Lord, that you would change the prayer lives of every individual in this church and of our church as a whole. 
cause us out of your great love for us and our love for you to be people who pray at all times, people who lift up all kinds of prayers and supplications, people who pray for one another and persevere in that prayer. Father, I, I do believe that if we, if we engage in this single means of grace that you will do supernatural things through us. I do believe that. I, I, I believe you'll change our church You'll change our families and you will change the community in which we live. So we humbly petition you as our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants to bless us. Bless us with that. We can say thy will be done because you want us praying. So make us a praying church for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.